Uh, if you got your Bibles, open to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and then 1 Kings chapter 19. I've also got to give a little shout out. My mom got married on Friday, and so that was a big deal. Thanks. Thanks. Um, my, uh, my father passed away six years ago, pancreatic cancer, and uh, my mom uh, met a man, fell in love, and uh, uh, he, uh, his wife actually died of pancreatic cancer also. And so uh, they were able to really have a lot in common, and uh, uh, the Lord used them to heal one another in a really special way. And so uh, they got married on Friday, and uh, I had to do the Zoom wedding thing, which was hard. I know some of you guys have had Zoom weddings, Zoom funerals, Zoom birthday parties, and all that fun stuff. And uh, I tell you, it's not the same, uh, but the uh, connection with them as husband and wife, we're going to have plenty of time to spend together. And so um, just uh, wanted to let you guys know that that was going on in my life and uh, wanted to share this with you also. I didn't share this on the video, but this is just for you guys, okay? Um, I had a weird moment when my mom wanted to start dating when she kind of let me know that that was going to happen. And then she asked me if it would be okay if I vetted the guys that she was going to date. And I just want to be honest with you. My answer was a resounding no. All right, no, I would not do that. It was a little weird, crossed the line for me. And uh, I told her, I, I don't know. I said, let me pray about it and I'll, I'll see what happens. So I really spent some time in prayer and uh, the Lord showed me a passage in 1 Corinthians that, that affirmed this. Um, but I went back to her and I said, here's the deal. I said, I have two criteria and you be the judge of it. I said, I need him to be godly and I need him to be good to you. And I said, uh, if he fulfills those two criteria, I don't have to meet him. Um, I just know I just know it'll be good. And so, of course, I did get to meet this man. I uh, got to shake his hand. We used hand sanitizer right afterwards, so don't get scared, all right? But um, got to shake his hand, and uh, he absolutely fulfills those two criteria. He is godly, and he is very good to my mom. And so just wanted to share that with you. For some of you going through the same thing, maybe you file that away and, uh, and can use that as well. And then for others of you who've already been through this with your mom taking a different last name than you have, um, maybe you can just have some pity for me and, uh, and know that it's been a hard week. And so uh, I appreciate that as well. All right, if you got your Bibles, open to John chapter six and 1 Kings chapter 19. John chapter six and 1 Kings chapter 19. Um, we're gonna introduce you today to one of the big problems of the Old Testament, and that is the difference between Elijah and Elisha. All right, okay, very, very similar names, two incredibly different stories. And a lot of times the stories get lumped in together because Elijah trains Elisha, but you will have a leg up on everybody else because you know the difference between the two. Elijah is the story that we are reading and studying about uh, over the next uh, several months, uh, but Elijah Elisha is going to be a fixture in these stories moving forward. And so um, the story we have today, you're introduced to Elisha and the way that God calls him. So we're going to talk about when God calls today. Uh, it starts with this question. Have you ever gotten a really important call before? You ever gotten a really important call before? Now, some of you are like, yes, every day, all the time. I uh, totally understand that. But there are some calls that end up life-changing, and most of the times they weren't on the schedule. Uh, these are calls that happen, uh, and they are in a very, very unpredictable fashion. And uh, uh, I can tell you for me personally, when we moved here to D.C., um, I'm not a buttoned-up guy. As you can see, I'm more of a zipped-up guy. And uh, uh, because of that, uh, there are things that happen about seven-tenths of a mile up the road where I do have to button up just a little bit more. 
more. And so in the very first time we had a member of Congress schedule a phone call uh, with me as the pastor of Waterfront Church, happened a month before the church existed, and uh, it was a congressman from my hometown, so it was a little bit of an easy, easier one. And uh, uh, he, I'll never forget, he messaged and said, I really need to speak to you today. And then he said, um, are you going to be in your office? Now, I didn't have an office, um, but for some reason, I messaged back, yes, from three to four. And so I sent that off. Autumn is there with me. We share the email account, my wife, and she goes, you just said you were going to be in your office from three to four. Where are you going to be exactly? And so, again, the church is negative one month old. We're living at 100 Capitol Yards right across the street here with three kids in a two-bedroom apartment. And so, uh, we, I mean, it is crazy. And Harper, our youngest, is nine months old. Let's see, she would have been nine months old. She would have been four months old at that point. Harper's four months old, uh, Jack is two, and Lulu is four. And so three kids in a two-bedroom apartment, and they're young and loud. And so here's what we did. I told Autumn, I was like, I guess I'll take the call in my car. You know, I guess my car could be my office. But the unthinkable happened. He called early. Nobody calls early in this town, right? And he calls early, and the phone starts ringing, and I'm in, I'm in the, you know, our apartment at 100 Capital Yards, 11th floor, and I'm like, oh, what do I do? I can't get downstairs quick enough. So I made the decision on the fly, I was going to lock every door and make the phone call from the closet. If you've been to 100 Capital Yards or 909 or the 70 over here, they're all the same. They typically have a bedroom, then there's a bathroom, and then another set of doors, and then there is a walk-in closet. And so here's what I decided. I would lock the bedroom door, lock the first bathroom door, lock the closet door, and then maybe, just maybe, that would buy me enough time for one of my kids not to find their way all the way back to me. Because you ever seen Jurassic Park where they're like, the raptors can open the doors? I mean, that was the case with our four-year-old. It was like, the raptor can open the doors. We gotta make sure we lock it in. So I'm running back, I'm locking all the doors. My wife had a little shoe ottoman basically that you could sit on and so I sit down and I answer the phone Zach Randall's and all of a sudden he goes hey uh, are you in your office are you where you can talk and I'm like yep I'm in my office in my office and so we had the conversation you never know when the call is going to come they would end up being longtime members of our church and uh, and have still just been just wonderful friends and uh, and been with us since the very beginning and we now I've gotten to tell him that whole story and he cracks up laughing and he was like dude you could have come up the hill and met with me and I'm like no man I, I had to meet you in my office right I had to meet you in my closet and so all that to say, important calls, you just don't know when they're going to come. Listen, it's the same way with Almighty God. He doesn't schedule it. We love that you're here on Sunday morning, and man, mark this off as a time to have your Sabbath on Sunday. But just because you showed up here on Sunday doesn't mean you get to hear from God. It's why the old timers used to sing that beautiful hymn, Breathe on Me, Holy Spirit, Breathe on Me. Take thou my heart, cleanse every part. Holy Spirit, breathe on me. The idea there was, Lord, breathe on me. Don't speak to the person on my left or my right and pass me by. Breathe on me. Holy Spirit, let me experience you in power. Let me hear your voice. Give me your wisdom and direction. Call out to my heart. Holy Spirit, breathe on me. The calling of God is something that is so precious, and it is something that you can't force other people to experience Jesus lays that out here for us in John chapter 6. Look at John 6, and then we're going to start in verse 40, then we'll jump back to 1 Kings chapter 19. 
In John 6, verse 40, this is right after Jesus has fed the 5,000, but he said the magic words here. He says, I am the bread that's come down from heaven. I am the bread of life. Know that in context, what he's just said there is, guys, I know I fed your physical bodies. Five loaves and two pieces of fish turned into breakfast burritos for all of you to eat, all right? But here's the deal. It's not about the physical body. Want me and not the stuff that I give to you. I am the bread of life. I'm the reason that, again, the Lord is reaching out to you. He wants you to, he wants you to experience eternal life. He wants to be, have an unhindered relationship with you. Look at verse 40. Jesus says, for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Look at this verse 41. But at this, the Jews began to grumble around him because he said, I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. They're saying, we just wanted you to feed us again, Jesus. We just wanted you to perform the miracle. We just wanted you to do the magic trick. You're saying now want me, not the stuff that I can give you want the relationship with me more than the blessing. You say, I am the bread come down from heaven, that you're the thing that can sustain us? Look at verse 42. Then they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? They look at him and they go, aren't you Jesus, Jesus Josephson? Isn't that who you are? Mary and Joseph are your parents. You came from Nazareth. How can you say I'm the bread come down from heaven? And look at what Jesus says here. Verse 43, stop grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Underline, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus says, want me, not the stuff that I can give you. Jesus says, want a relationship with God because he loved you so much that he sent me to take your place, to take the place of your sin. And then they look at him and they go, how can that be possible? And then Jesus says, you know why it's not possible in your heart and mind? It's because the Spirit has not called you yet. You see, when they look at him and go, how do you expect us to believe this? Jesus says, I don't. There's no words that you can say to persuade someone or coerce them or inform them into belief. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father unless that moment of the Spirit's calling has taken place within them. It's the reason why Denver and the band did an amazing job in the worship set today. I'm going to try to preach to you as best as I can with words that I've researched and passages that I've done the, the work on. I've tried to tie in different stories so that you stay engaged. But the truth of the matter is this. You could have the best worship and the best preaching up on this stage, but if the Spirit doesn't call, if He doesn't do the heavy lifting, then all of it was just for nothing. It has to be a moment when the Spirit calls you. And Jesus says to them, as as much as I want you to know me, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. A calling from God is a very, very special thing. If you're taking notes, write this down. Our relationship with God is initiated by a call from God. Our relationship with God is initiated by a call from God. And you cannot schedule when that call is. You just know it when it happens. Let me give you an example. I love watching the Nationals play. And our best player, other than um, the pitchers that we have, 
Uh, again, Strasburg and, and Scherzer, probably our best players. But man, Juan Soto, Juan Soto is a lot of fun to watch. Plays left field for us. He does that little, you know, hip shake. You know what I mean? I mean, he's just a lot of fun to watch. And because we've gotten to watch him since he was like 20 years old, uh, he's just, again, he's, he's one of our family favorites. And so uh, Juan Soto plays left field. I also played backup left fielder in high school. And so, uh, you know, we, we're very similar. And so all that to say, uh, let's say that I'm at one of the Nats games uh, when it's not coronavirus. And let's say that all of a sudden I'm sitting in left field watching my favorite player play. And then he goes down, God forbid, with an injury. Well, guess what happens? He goes down and all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, I play left field. They're definitely, Coach Martinez is definitely gonna want me to get in the game. And I climb down out of the stands and I run into left field with my glove because of course I have my glove there just in case the situation has happened. And I run out there into left field. Can I tell you what's gonna happen? They gonna tase me, all right? That's what's gonna happen, okay? You know why? Because I'm not allowed to be on that field. I was not called to be on that field. You know who's gonna play left field if Juan Soto gets injured? Somebody on the bench, Someone in AAA, someone in AA, someone in single A, and then about 10,000 other people before they ever even think about somebody like me, all right? Can I tell you why? Because the Lord prepares us for that moment, and then he calls us so that then when we insert into the circumstance, we become who we were made to be. Calling is where he crafts in us a moment that he, or he crafts, he crafts for us a moment where we plug in and we do what we were called to do. When it comes to God's calling, you don't get to decide when that moment happens. You just get to decide whether or not you say yes to what he's called you to do or whether you miss the bus. And we're going to talk about that at length in just a minute. If you're taking notes, we're going to address the million-dollar question today. How does a calling from God work? It's a great lesson to take notes on. And for some of you, this is the way that you came to Jesus the first time but it also is the same way that you follow through with believer's baptism. Step one is salvation. That's what matters for eternity. But baptism is what we call the first step of obedience or your public profession of faith where you say, I'm saved and I don't care who knows it. That's every believer's second step in their journey towards sanctification. And then steps three through a billion, you're gonna say yes to God the same way you did in step one and step two. So how does a calling from God work? Now flip back to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're gonna start in verse 19 and we're gonna go through the call of Elisha. And it is so similar, even in the Old Old Testament period, it's the same way that God continues to call us today. Look at what happens. 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 19. It says, so Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shephat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. Underline and highlight, he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. And he himself was driving the 12th pair. Underline, he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah then went up and he threw his cloak around him. That was symbolic of him asking uh, for Elisha to become his apprentice, for him to teach him the things that he knew. Now stop here and don't miss this. Remember what we studied about last week? And we talked about Elijah 
and how he stands before God and he says, oh, I'm the only one. I've been zealous for the Lord God Almighty. I'm the only one who really lives it. I'm the only one that can really preach it. I'm out here and I'm all alone. And the Lord stands up to him and goes, dude, what are you talking about? There's 7,000 that I have reserved who have not bowed their knee to Baal. You just see the one or even with Obadiah, you just see the hundred. I've got 7,000 or even 70 times what it is that you see with your own eyes. I am up to something special in your days and it is not falling apart. There's just, they're just underground for right now. With that moment and with that in mind, the Lord then tells him, go find Elisha and he's the one specifically that's gonna be the one who comes after you. Don't miss this. If you are someone who is not a minister in this room, 1 Kings 19, 19 is one you need to remember. Where was this great prophet? He was working in the fields. He wasn't at seminary. He wasn't in a church. He was plowing in the fields. Can I tell you why that's important? Because God can call anyone from anywhere. Sometimes there can be this attitude that a preacher is above, just because I'm like physically above you, all right? There can be this attitude that a preacher or a minister is the one who is elevated to do the work of God. We do it professionally. But guys, I'm a fellow traveler in the journey. We do this together. And you know what? If there is ever, if you ever move from this city and you've got to find another church, be real careful in finding a church where it escalates the pastor or the leader as the God in that circumstance. That's called a cult. I'm telling you, good people fall into them because we forget we are fellow travelers in the journey. In this case... Elijah goes, churches are closed. Where's the help going to come from? They're persecuting pastors. They're persecuting priests. Where's the help going to come from? And the Lord goes, I got 7,000, and the best of them is plowing in the fields right now waiting for you to disciple him, Elijah. Just go find him. Elijah finds Elisha, and he not only is working in the field, don't miss this, it says that the owner of the field, which is Elisha, is plowing at the back. He's bringing up the caboose. He's at the back. He's plowing with the 12th yoke himself. He's not just working in the fields, but he is making sure that his employees are plowing straight fields. Isn't that a cool picture there? Here is a guy who is living his faith even when it comes to the way they plow the fields. He is ready to be deployed and ready for service. If you're taking notes, write this down. How does a calling from God work? First and foremost, number one, God's calling is unpredictable. God's calling is unpredictable. It is not something that you can schedule in this circumstance. I guarantee you the last thing Elisha thought on this day when he was plowing with the 12 yoke of oxen, when he again was out there working in the fields himself, the last thing he thought is that he was going to give his life to the ministry of Almighty God, that he would get to truly be Elijah's disciple. I guarantee you that was one of the last things he thought would happen that day. If you're taking notes, write this down. You cannot script or schedule a moment of God. He moves suddenly and without warning. Let me say that again. You cannot script or schedule a movement of God. He moves suddenly and without warning. Why does God do it that way? Because it reminds you whenever you tell the story that you didn't do this on your own. That God is the one who placed the idea into your mind. He placed the fire in your heart, the calling into your spirit. And then instead of trusting yourself or your intellect, you realize this was a movement of Almighty God and he did this for me. 
I've told you the calling story of Waterfront before. I was living in Stillwater, Oklahoma at the Presidential Studios. They had built one studio apartment. It was, they were all named after presidents, so it was Washington 1A in Stillwater, Oklahoma was the one that I lived in. I was the first person to live there. And at the foot of my futon, when I was praying on a normal day, I had a vision. Now, just for the record, I had a vision one time. That's all I could handle, all right? But the Lord cast vision for a place I'd never been and a people I'd never met in Washington, D.C. I'd never even been here before. I'd tell Autumn about it. That unpredictable day ended up changing the rest of my life. I'd tell my wife about it. We hadn't even met at that point. And I'd tell my wife Autumn about it. And she hears it. But it wasn't until our first mission trip that she really caught what the Lord was doing. We had been told by our pastor, I was 24 years old, and we'd been told by our pastor that I could take a mission trip anywhere we wanted to go. And so Autumn looked at me and she goes, well, you gotta go to D.C. You had that crazy vision. You gotta go to D.C. and see it. This was about 2004. So we loaded up. We had 42 high school kids that we brought here with us, suburban Dallas kids. We came up, I'm 24, so I'm not even old enough to drive a van. I had to, we had to rent a van and I had to bring leaders to drive it. I couldn't even drive it as the leader of the trip. And we saw something I'd never experienced before. This is 04 in DC. This is before the Nats out here. This is before the ballpark. This is before any of the high rises are built. And this particular area, we drive through, and back in those days, it was the tail end of the crack era, and you had mattresses lining underneath the overpass. I had never seen poverty like that before. I'd never seen people aching like that before. And again, 24 years old, I just had not seen something like that. And it, it broke me. And for those suburban Dallas kids, it broke them too. So on a Wednesday night of the mission trip, we'd gotten there on Monday. I just said, like youth ministers have done a thousand times, I told the kids, I said, we all met some really neat people today. Let's spend some time praying for them. And then when you get done, We'll open it up and we'll do our time of worship together. So 42 kids, and again, not a deep spiritual group, just on the front end of something God was doing. So we start to pray, and I thought it'd be 45 seconds. I really did. And the worship leader starts to pray, or starts to play his guitar, but the kids pray louder and louder and louder. We get to one point where the worship leader, you can't even hear his guitar being pray, played. These kids are praying that loud, tears streaming down my cheeks too. The Lord was moving, the spirit had fallen. He sets down his guitar. Those kids prayed for hours, broken over our city. I'd never experienced anything like it. And that's when my wife came up and she goes, you really did have a vision, didn't you? We're supposed to come and help in this city. That was at Star Bethlehem Church in Northwest. That was where that moment happened in their fellowship hall at Star Bethlehem Church here in D.C. Fast forward, we start getting ready to plant the church. I'm at a conference called the Orange Conference in Atlanta, led by a guy named Andy Stanley, but I had just heard a preacher named Craig Groeschel preach uh, from LifeChurch.tv. Heck of a writer, too. I remember Craig Groeschel preached that day, and I walked out to the mezzanine area there at North Point, and I remember I cried out to God and I said, Lord, I, is this going to happen? Are we actually going to plant this church? This is about four, four, four or five years before we moved up here. I said, is this really going to happen? If it's going to happen, I need you to just give me something. Just give me, a, give me a sign. Give me something that this is actually going to happen, that this isn't just some crazy dream that I've had. Lord, just give me something. 
And it was that day in Atlanta that the Lord gave me the name Waterfront Church for it to be called. I was staring at the map and saw the two rivers, Anacostia and the Potomac, south of the interstate. And without even fully understanding the city, that's where we felt like we were called to plant. And that's the way the Lord gave the name Waterfront Church. You see, God moves in the unpredictable. Because then you have a story to tell, and he is visible, not you in what's taking place. Save your spot there in 1 Kings, and now flip over to Luke chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 1 together. We're going to tell some stories in Luke today because the same way that calling works in the Old Testament is the same way that Jesus had calling work in the New Testament as well. Look at Luke chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 1. Calling is so unpredictable, and Peter got to experience that firsthand on uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 1. It says, one day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, look at this, and he asked him, underline, he asked him to put out just a little bit from shore. And when they sat, or when, and then he sat down and he taught the people. Stop right there for just a minute and you gotta picture this. Peter has been fishing all night long and he's exhausted, he's just finished a shift. And not only that, but we're gonna find out in just a minute, they didn't catch anything. So Peter has got the weight of the world on his shoulders at this point. They've just fished. They've caught nothing. He can't pay his employees with the catch from the day. Also, I mean, the way that, that, uh, that uh, supply and demand works, they don't have a whole bunch of refrigerators to put these fish in. That means that fish prices are going to go up throughout the city and everybody's going to be in trouble that day because they didn't catch anything. And so guess what? Peter's sitting there. They're washing their nets. He's about to go home empty-handed. They're exhausted. And then what happens? The Jesus crusade makes its way to the shore. When they get there, Jesus is backed up to the edge and they are all pushing in around him trying to get a good seat because there's no megaphones, there's no microphones. Everybody wants to get in close to hear him and those who are sick are trying to get in close to touch him and to get healed. So he's backed up to the edge. Nobody can hear anything he's saying. So what does he do? He steps into Peter's boat. This moment that is unprecedented and unpredictable. And he looks at Peter and says, hey, can you put out just a little bit from shore so that they can hear what I have to say? You ever shown up at a restaurant here in D.C. two minutes before close and you want them to serve you? What usually happens when you do that? they usually ask you to go ahead and go home. Now, before you get angry about that, okay? Claim capitalism, whatever, all right? Can I just tell you, I get it. The metro schedule has been so limited now out here. There are sometimes people looking at you going, are you sure you have to stay open extra two minutes to feed you? That means that the buses don't run after a certain time. The metro doesn't run after a certain time. If I give you these extra few minutes, that's taking an extra hour away from my family. And it may mean that you have to Uber home instead of taking the train home because the train doesn't run after that time period. Now listen to me. Whatever the reason is, cut those people some slack. With Peter, Peter's exhausted. He fished all night. And all of a sudden Jesus says, can you put your boat back into the water for me, please? Can I tell you that Peter, if it was nobody, he would have said, sorry, dude, can you find another place for your crusade? But the Spirit calls. 
the stirring of God, the calling of God hits him. And Jesus says, would you do this with me? And Peter goes, all right, I'll do it. They back out from shore. Now look at what happens next. Verse five, or excuse me, verse four. It says, when they had finished speaking, Jesus said to Simon, would you put out in the deep water and let down your nets for a catch? Now stop right there. What did it say that Peter and the men were doing before this? They weren't just folding their nets. They were washing their nets. They were done for the day. They were finished. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, would you come with me just a little bit further? Verse 5, Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and hadn't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. I promise you, Peter is not doing this just to be nice out of Southern hospitality. You know why he's doing this? Because the Spirit has called him. Because Almighty God has called out to his spirit. He knows that something deeper is going on here. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Look at verse six. So when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they filled the boat so full that they both began to sink. Look at verse eight. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. For he and his companions were astonished at the catch that they had, a fish that they had taken in. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partner. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes in with the third calling, what he was setting him up for the entire time. It says, then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats to shore. They left everything and they followed after him. You want to talk about unpredictable? The way this story ends, Jesus says, can I get in your boat so they can hear the message? Peter goes, I don't know why. I'm just supposed to do this. Yeah, you can use my boat. Jesus goes, excellent. Will you just go fishing one more time? Would you live for me at work, Peter? Would you just throw your nets over the side? Trust me, I know you just cleaned them up. I know you're exhausted. I know you have to pay your employees overtime, but would you just trust me with this? And he goes, I don't know why. I just feel in my my gut, there's a burning in my soul that I'm supposed to do this. Yes, I'll follow you in this. And then all of a sudden, when the miracle takes place, he looks at him and goes, man, Jesus, who are you? Go away from me. I'm a sinful man. I don't even deserve to be around you. And then Jesus looks at him and says, would you come with me just a little bit further? Follow me. I'm going to change your name, your occupation. I'm going to help you become who you were made to be. And then all of a sudden, Peter goes, I can't believe this, but I'm leaving my nets. I'm leaving my boats. I'm leaving profit, two nets full of fish. I'm leaving it all to know how to be like you. The call of God is unpredictable, but when you say yes, you become who you were made to be. He shows you exactly why you were created for such a time as this. It begs the question, are you scheduling God to work in your life when you should be asking God to work in your life? Let me say that again. Are you scheduling God to work in your life when you should be asking God to work in your life? Save your spot in Luke 5 and now flip back over to 1 Kings 19 again. In 1 Kings 19, that first verse, again, Elijah comes and puts the cloak around Elisha while he's working, while he's working a normal job, just like many of us in this room. And now look at verse 20. It says, Elisha then left his oxen, just like Peter. 
He left his oxen, and look at this, and he ran after Elijah. Underline and highlight ran after Elijah. That's a really important verb there. Let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye, he said, and then I'll come back and follow you. I love this. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? All right. Now, Elijah is saying that because this relationship with God has come to define his life. It's become something that's so special and so precious it's eternal. And yet for Elijah, Elijah's sitting there going, oh my goodness, this kid is going to receive the apprenticeship. He wants to come and follow me. He wants me to disciple him. The same struggles that I've had with the government, the same struggles that I've had trying to live in the wilderness, the same struggles that I've had family-wise. He goes, man, this kid's going to have to go through it in the same way that I have. Oh my goodness, what have I done to him? Don't miss this. When the cloak is put around him, it seems to me that Elisha doesn't really realize what's happening. That word ran lets you know Elijah puts the cloak around him, symbolic of, I want you to be my disciple, my apprentice. And when the cloak is around him, Elisha then goes, what just happened? I was just plowing in the field. What just happened? What has taken place here? Now, don't miss this. He then runs after Elisha because he realizes this moment is urgent and this moment is critical. If you're taking notes, write that down. Second point, God's call is urgent. God's call is urgent. Obey the spirit promptly because you are never guaranteed that it's gonna happen a second time. Don't miss this. For some of you, when the spirit calls you, your first response is, what just happened? Is this for real? That's the same way that Elisha, one of the finest prophets in all of scripture, responded to God's call as well. The key is work through it quickly. Really process it. In the same way when Jesus says, no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draweth him. There has to be an urgency within you, but if your response first of all is, did that really just happen? Is that really what God wants me to do? You know that that idea, that that thought, that that feeling didn't come from somewhere in your head or in your body. It came from Almighty God. Once you process through that, you run with reckless abandon after whatever it is that God has called you to do. God's call is urgent. If you're taking notes, write this down. Matters of the soul require immediate attention. Let me say that again. Matters of the soul require immediate attention. He left his oxen, he left his parents, and he ran after Elijah. His first response is what just happened. His second response is this was something holy. Remember Jesus says, until the spirit calls you, it doesn't make sense. But then like a lightning bolt, the spirit brings clarity and you realize that it is truth. You ever missed the bus before? That's the worst, right? That's the worst. I, mean, I don't care if you're, if you're eight or if you're 80. You know what I mean? It, missing the bus is the worst, right? And here's the deal. If you see the bus a block away and it pulls up, if the bus is a block away from you and it pulls up, do you just sit there and go, oh, there's the bus. They'll wait. And then you mosey over to the bus. What is that bus going to do in D.C.? 
They're going to keep their rigorous schedule and they're taking off down the road. All right. It's just the way that it goes. They expect an absolutely insane schedule from those bus drivers. And I'm telling you, they do the best they can. Some of the best driving in DC I've ever seen has come from bus drivers out here because it's just so brutal to get around. They're going to go ahead and go. You know why? Because you weren't there and you had your opportunity. You had your moment. If you don't run, then you will miss the bus. I have seen bus drivers before. If they see you running, they will stop and wait. But if you're just moseying, how are they supposed to know that you're going over there to them? There's an urgency that lets the driver know you're wanting to get on board for this. Matters of the soul require immediate attention. Don't miss the bus. Look with me, if you will, now at Luke chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. You don't think there's a pattern here? I'm going to show you. This is the story of the calling of Levi. You know him as Matthew. He was a tax collector. Look at his story and see how similar it is to the story of Peter, James, and John, and also to Elisha. Here's what it says, Luke 5, 27. It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at the tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And what? Levi got up, left everything, and he followed him. Notice that left everything is a common theme here when it comes to the calling of Almighty God. Whatever it is that you've built for yourself up until that moment, it pales in comparison to what Almighty God has in store for you in the reason that you were created. In this case, a Levi, he's sitting at a tax collector booth, a table of money in the middle of the city, much of it that he probably has gotten through means that were not above board, that were wicked. So how does it end? Jesus looks at him and says, follow me. You've been waiting for this moment your whole adult life. And what does Levi do? He gets up and leaves everything. Don't miss this. For Peter, everything was boats, it was fish, and it was nets. For Levi, he leaves a table full of money in the middle of the city. Can you imagine leaving a table full of money in the middle of the city? As soon as that joker gets up, it's gone. It's just the way it goes. That's no comment on our city. That's every city, all right? You leave a table full of money in the middle of town, and it's going to be gone. People are going to look and then figure out a reason that they justify in their head to take it. Levi leaves a table full of money in the middle of the stinking city because he doesn't have any guarantee that Jesus is ever going to ask him to follow him again. It says in Scripture in the book of Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Can I tell you why that verse is so important when it comes to God's calling? Nobody knocks on your door for five years straight. It'd be incredibly annoying, wouldn't it? And you know what you would do? You wouldn't answer the door. You'd call the police. It's just the way that it goes. So guess what happens? When Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, he's not going, I'll get you. I'll get you eventually. I'm going to get you, right? You're going to do this until you're annoyed enough to answer the door. No, he's a gentleman. He knocks. And if you don't answer, maybe they knock a second time. But then after that, what does the person do? They move along. It's the picture that's given of conviction of the Holy Spirit. God calls to us and he allows us to freak out and go, is this really what I'm supposed to do? Is this really God speaking to me? But then we have to go answer the call. We have to go answer the door. And if we don't, he moves along. It begs the question, 
Do you keep missing the bus? Do you keep missing the bus? Are there some of you that need to up your mosey to a full out sprint? Elisha ran to Elijah. He did not want to miss his moment. And then now let's look at 1 Kings 19 verse 21. And here's how our story ends. It says, so Elisha left him. Now look at this. This is crazy. He left him and he went back. And Elisha took the yoke of oxen and he slaughtered them. Underline, he slaughtered the oxen. And then it says, and he burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat. And then he gave it to the people and they ate it. And he then set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. Stop right there for just a minute. If you notice, there was a little bit of a connection between Luke chapter 9 and 1 Kings 19 when Jesus says, uh, when a man looks at Jesus and says, can I first go kiss my mother and father goodbye? It was right in the same vein as Elisha. But in the story with Jesus, he looks and says, uh, no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of heaven. The difference here that's a direct tie to this passage is Elisha goes, let me go tell my parents goodbye because Elijah, remember, had been hiding in caves. He'd been living in the wilderness. He'd been under the radar. He goes, let me go tell my parents that I didn't get kidnapped, that I'm receiving God's call and going to do this. And then he stops and he goes, and you know what? I'm done being a farmer. I'm done with that life. I live for Yahweh now. In fact, here's what I'm going to do. I want all my friends, I want all my relatives to know that. So let's do this. Let's slaughter and sacrifice the oxen, but we're going to do a big cookout for everybody. We'll do one big feast so that they can know I'm headed off to go and follow and be a disciple. I mean, I'm telling you the radical nature of what Elisha has done here is the calling of God on each and every disciple's life. Every one of us, not everyone is called to be a minister, but every one of us is called to be a disciple, amen? That's the calling on every believer's life, that the things you have would not belong to you. If you're taking notes, our last point today, how does a calling from God work? Number one, God's calling is unpredictable. Number two, God's call is urgent. And number three, God's call changes everything. God's call changes everything. What Elisha has just said here is burn the equipment, slaughter the oxen. I am not leaving myself an escape valve. I'm not leaving myself a secondary plan. My life belongs to Yahweh. Every disciple has to come to that point when you realize my life is not my own. It's what we mean by calling Jesus our Lord, not just our Savior, but he's our Lord. Our lives belong to him. Sometimes we can think of it this way, that when we get saved, that when we believe in Jesus, it's just another thing. We are the person we used to be. We are just this as well. That's not the case. If you were the person that thought when I get saved, that Jesus looks at me and goes, hey, just keep doing your thing, man. Just keep doing your thing. Come as you are, but we leave changed. The goal is not that you would just be yourself with Jesus. The goal is that you would be who you were made to be, that we would be in the likeness of his son, that God would fashion us and change us to become who we were made to be and not just who we are at this point. You come as you are, but you do not stay as you are. We become like him. God's call changes everything. If you're taking notes, write this down. Time with Jesus changes the way people, the way we view people, our possessions, 
and our purpose. Time with Jesus changes the way we view people, our possessions, and our purpose. It's not about just keep doing your thing. There is life change that must take place. There's repentance that must happen. I'll never forget, y'all have heard my story of my testimony many times before. And if you hadn't, it's, I'll tell you the short version. I was at a camp called Camp Chaparral in Iowa Park, Texas. And that night, the Spirit called out to my heart. It was the first time I ever said yes to Jesus. Called out to my heart, I believed, and I was saved. But the next day is one that also was very special. We're at a camp again, Camp Chaparral, and I got saved on a Wednesday night. And we had that next day Thursday at camp also. And I'll never forget, at the, there was a movie that had just come out. It's on Netflix now called Hook. Did you ever see Hook? Back in the day, have you seen Hook? Raise your hand a few of you. There you go. It's uh, Dustin Hoffman as Captain Hook, uh, Robin Williams as Peter Pan, a really old Peter Pan, all right? Uh, maybe the oldest on record, okay? But uh, he plays Peter Pan. And uh, in the movie, there's also a character named Rufio. And uh, Rufio is kind of the one who runs the Lost Boys group. Uh, and uh, he does something called, uh, he crows like a rooster and he yells the word bangerang. You have to watch it on Netflix and see it's a great little movie. And so uh, anyway, all that to say, that next morning after I prayed to receive Christ, that next morning, it's about five o'clock in the morning and a guy named Brandon Gaines is in our cabin and Brandon Gaines gets up at five o'clock in the morning, stands up on the bunk and he goes, bangerang, and he starts crowing like a rooster and running around the, uh, the dorm. And so, I mean, again, the guys are, we're all cracking up, but I mean, everybody's throwing their pillows at him, trying to, he's just hopping from, it's, these are, these are uh, bunk beds. And so he's hopping from top bunk to top bunk, and just going, well, finally the leaders get him and they're like, you go to sleep right now. And so, you know, it's 5 a.m., sun's just coming up. And so they get him to fall, get him down, get him back to sleep. The rest of the group goes to sleep, but I did something I'd never done before. I got up early. All of a sudden, I could feel it. The same call that I'd had to be saved, there was a call in my gut to go and spend time with God. I didn't even know what that meant. And I remember I grabbed my little Bible and down the hill, there was a prayer garden. And I went down, sat at the prayer garden, and I just felt like I was supposed to read my Bible. I opened up to the book of Psalms. And that was the day, without any instruction, I had my first, what we call, quiet time. I sat with God, and I let him speak to my heart that morning. It was the most amazing experience. And I can tell you, it was a calling to do so. God's call, that day I was saved, it changed everything. It changed my insides. And the Lord began to work on my outsides as well. Nobody understood that. Like Zacchaeus. One last little set of verses and we'll call it a day today. Flip over to Luke chapter 19. I want to read you verses 1 through 10. In Luke chapter 19, we get the story of another man called by Jesus. One who in some ways, I'm named more after Zechariah, but in some ways he's one of my namesakes. It says in chapter 19, verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and he was wealthy. Remember, tax collector, chief tax collector means that he's cheated a lot of people, maybe everyone in town. He's got a lot of money. He wanted to see Jesus, 
But being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore tree, and he went to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Again, look at this. It's unpredictable in nature. Look at the urgency in Zacchaeus to climb up in that tree just so he could get a glimpse of Jesus. When Jesus reached that spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Underline and highlight that word immediately. Come down with urgency. I must stay at your house today. I love the wording there. I must stay at your house today. So he came down and he welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and they began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, underline, look, Lord, like a, boy, like, a, like a young boy or a young girl looking and saying, mom, dad, watch me on the high dive in the swimming pool. Look, Lord, look, watch me do this trick. Watch me do this. Change has taken place in me. Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times that amount. And Jesus looked at him and said, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save that which was lost. That's what it looks like when God's call takes place. It starts off as something unpredictable that we can't explain. It comes with urgency. We have to receive it. And then it changes everything not to make you into some robot, but to help you become who you were made to be. Fulfillment, purpose, joy, peace, unexplainable. All wait for you just to say yes to Jesus. It begs the final question today. Is God calling you today? Is God calling you today? I can't make him. I can't make him. I can only facilitate the moment. Is God calling you today to be saved, to be baptized? Maybe to say yes to something super weird. <laughs> Is he calling you to say yes today? I want to encourage you to do so. Let's bow our heads for prayer.